I have a riddle for you all today, which goes like this. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And you'll probably only be able to solve this one if you've read the book of Judges in the Bible. Specifically, the part that tells the story of the Hebrew hero Samson. The first people to hear it did not have the benefit of having read the book of Judges. This story is one of my favorites. I love it because of its symbolic resonance, but even more so because of its memorable hero. There's something archaic and folktale-like about it, which is somewhat odd in a grouping of biblical books usually called the historical books. Samson reminds me of a hero in a Western movie. In a violent place, in a violent time, he is uniquely skilled at violence, even creative with it. Selfish, capricious, stubborn, and vengeful. He's only a hero because he's fighting on behalf of the good guys, for now. Not that he ever switches sides, I'm just saying. He has the character of a gunslinger who only happens to be on the right side of the law. Samson was born to aging and childless parents who prayed to the Lord to bring them a child. Their prayers were answered, but they got way more than they bargained for. An angel appeared to them and instructed them that, among other things, his hair was not to be cut. This practice came from a group called the Nazarites, who took such vows for the sake of holiness. This, by the way, is continued in our time by the Rastafarians, which is why they wear dreadlocks. Some Rastafari even claim that Samson sported dreadlocks. Scripture states that he had seven locks of hair, seven being a magical number, as you doubtless know. At any rate, this long hair would be the secret source of Samson's strength. Now, his parents surely just wanted him to be a good boy and marry a nice Hebrew girl, but this was not in the cards. The willful young man went to roving and fell in love with a Philistine woman. On his way to ask for her hand in marriage, he was attacked by a lion, which he proceeded to rip to shreds with his bare hands. When he later returned to her country for the wedding, he saw that some bees had taken up the lion's rotting carcass as their new home, which is now filled with honey. At the wedding feast, in the company of Philistines, Samson proposed the riddle I quoted earlier. The deal was that if anyone solved it within seven days, he would provide them with 30 pieces of fine linen to wear. If not, they had to give him 30 pieces of fine linen, which made the Philistines furious. Probably rightly so, because it was really more of a trick than a riddle. The answer referred to the earlier incident with the lion and the bees, but there was not a single witness to that event. So the Philistines found a backdoor solution in the form of Samson's wife, 
whom they threatened to burn, along with her father and his household, if she didn't spill the bees. I mean, the beans. So on the seventh day, they approached Samson with the answer. What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? This is the answer, and Samson knows exactly how they obtained it. If you had not plowed with my heifer, he tells them, you would not have solved my riddle. But a deal is a deal. So Samson fulfills his end of the bargain by going off to another town named Ashkelon and killing 30 Philistines there, taking the garments off their corpses to deliver to the first Philistines. See, now tell me this isn't a scene in a Western movie. I can just picture the blood stains and bullet holes on the clothes as Samson throws them at the Philistines' feet. The story then continues in an escalating cycle of excessive and fairly weird violence, but we should probably stop here and do a little symbolic analysis. The whole tale seems like a great example of what Hegel called the cunning of reason, where particular purposes of the individual are made to serve the substantial will of the world spirit. Everyone involved, the hero, his parents, the Philistine enemy, serves a historical purpose, but not on purpose. Of course, I chose to look at this story because of one small but significant detail, the bees. There's a lot going on here. You probably already noticed the recurrence of certain significant numbers, like 7 and 30, respectively the number of days in the week and month, roughly speaking. The Samson tale has often been compared to myths of the Greek hero Heracles, or Hercules. They're both strong men, of course, and the incident with the lion reminds us that Hercules' first laborer of the famous Twelve was fighting a lion in Nemea. There's definitely not a one-to-one -one correspondence between the two stories, but here's another connection. Hercules is widely acknowledged to be what is called a solar hero, whose story represents the annual journey of the sun through the signs of the zodiac. Samson's name in Hebrew is pronounced Shimshon, and literally means of the sun. Allow me to quote the Masonic scholar Manly P. Hall from the secret teachings of all ages on the solar hero. Quote, the sun, as he pursued his way among these living creatures of the zodiac, was said in allegorical language either to assume the nature of or to triumph over the sign that he entered. The sun thus became a bull in Taurus and was worshipped as such by the Egyptians under the name of Apis and by the Assyrians as Bel, Baal, or Bull. In Leo, the sun became a lion slayer, Hercules, and an archer in Sagittarius. The Egyptian priests in many of their ceremonies wore the skins of lions, which were the symbols of the solar orb 
owing to the fact that the sun is exalted, dignified, and most fortunately placed in the constellation of Leo, which he rules and which was at one time the keystone of the celestial arch. Again, Hercules is the solar deity, for as this mighty hunter performed his twelve labors, so the sun, in traversing the twelve houses of the zodiacal band, performs during his pilgrimage twelve essential and benevolent labors for the human race and for nature in general. Samson, the Hebrew hero, as his name implies, is also a solar deity. His fight with the Nubian lion, his battles with the Philistines, who represent the powers of darkness, and his memorable feat of carrying off the gates of Gaza, all refer to aspects of solar activity. End quote. Now hopefully you recall the previous Bees episode, in which we explored in great detail, mostly by a Rudolf Steiner, the relationship between bees and the sun. But there's a possibility that the reason bees are present in this story is because of a confusion with the Egyptian bull deity Apis and the Latin name of the bee, Apis. Another connection between bee and bull occurs in what is called Begonia, the curious belief found throughout the ancient Near East and Mediterranean that the maggots which fed from the carcass of a dead animal, such as a cow or ox or a lion, would turn into bees. Many ancient writers described the process of birthing new bees by suffocating and then either burying a bull or keeping it in a sequestered room. Some believed that dead bees could be resurrected if their ashes were mixed with sweet wine and exposed to sunlight. The idea that biological life could arise out of dead matter may have originated in Egypt, where many creatures appear suddenly right out of the mud of the Nile during springtime. Recall that Osiris is Egypt's dying and resurrecting god. The Ptolemaic period in Egypt saw the rise of a cult around the syncretic god Serapis, which combined Osiris with the bull god Apis. I don't know if Begonia or bees were involved in his rituals, but the imagery fits. The beehive is a Masonic symbol for industry. But in his Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, Albert Mackey also gives an additional meaning as a type of arc, the arc itself being a symbol for regeneration, the second birth from death to life. The word arc comes from the Latin arca for chest, and is also an old, not to say archaic, term for a large, flat-bottomed boat. In each case, we're dealing with an enclosed container of some kind. From the Bible, we know Noah's Ark, which was a boat that preserved his family and allowed humanity to survive the universal flood. There was also the Ark of the Covenant, a gold-covered portable wooden chest which contained sacred relics like the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, built during the Exodus. Mackey connects this to the begonia myth of bees born from an animal carcass, which he says also symbolized the Ark. One group that adopted the Masonic bee 
with unparalleled enthusiasm was the Mormons. Before the state of Utah existed, their country was known as Deseret, a word for the honeybee that appears in the Book of Mormon in the language of the Jaredites, a group of supposed exiles to America from the time of the Tower of Babel. Intriguingly, the Jaredites' mode of transport to the New World was in sealed barges in which they huddled without light and without the ability to steer, and only a couple of stoppered holes for air. The Lord said to Jared, quote, For behold, ye shall be as a whale in the midst of the sea, for the mountain waves shall dash upon you. Nevertheless, I will bring you up again out of the depths of the sea, for the winds have gone forth out of my mouth, and also the rains and the floods have I sent forth. End quote. In the barges, they brought seeds and honeybees to the new land. Naturally, this recalls the story of Noah and the flood, but it also obscurely recalls the bees and begonia, which Mackey relates to the ark. The Mormons themselves were also immigrant exiles to the west that fled and refounded their colony in Deseret like the bees in spring. More on that simile in a moment. I happen to live in Utah, and it's pretty hard to escape the bee. It is the beehive state, and our state motto is industry. What sort of industry is developing here these days is uh, kind we'll be discussing near the end of the episode. Anyway, another aspect of this belief in begonia is that bees born from different animals produced a sort of honey hierarchy in which the noblest animals resulted in the noblest bees and thus the best honey. The lion would have been right at the top of the hierarchy. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Of course, the Bible never explicitly states that the bees were born from the lion's carcass, only that Samson found them there. And it appears that Jews in the ancient world might not have even known about the Begonia myth because it never comes up in any rabbinic commentaries on the Samson story throughout the ages. But at the same time, neither does Aristotle bring up Begonia in his lengthy discussions about bees, even though he clearly believed in spontaneous generation. There is a Jewish source which references it, Philo of Alexandria, who lived in the first half of the first century BCE, but his work is part of the philosophical and not rabbinic corpus. As a Hellenized Jew living in, well, Alexandria, of course, in Egypt, he would have been well-placed to be aware of a common pagan myth. If it is actually referenced in the Samson story, it is one of many elements that seem more related to Greek or Mycenaean culture than Hebrew. Another oddity is Samson's riddle itself, since it is the sole example of an explicit riddle in the whole Bible. In 1 Kings, the Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon to test his vaunted wisdom, which he passes, but we don't learn what the riddles were. So the Bible only has one riddle, which is kind of not a true riddle, in the sense that you couldn't have solved it without cheating. And when the riddle was solved through cheating, 
Samson then killed 30 random strangers in order to fulfill the terms of its solution. It seems as though the Bible's stance is riddles, not even once. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper, and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Someone who is definitely familiar with Begonia, and that's Begonia, by the way, not the flower Begonia, like Scarlet Begonias, but uh, Begonia was written about by the great Rowan poet Virgil, who described it in his poem The Georgics, part of which is about beekeeping. It comes up when he tells the story of Orpheus and Eurydice which is a myth of a death and a failed resurrection. In the Georgics, the hero Aristias pursues Eurydice and accidentally causes her death and is punished with the death of all his bees. He then descends to the home of his mother, the nymph Cyrene, where he is given instructions on how to restore his colonies. He must capture the seer Proteus and force him to reveal which divine spirit he angered and how to restore his bee colonies. After he binds Proteus, who changes into many forms to no avail, Proteus describes the descent of Orpheus into the underworld to retrieve 
Eurydice, the backward look that caused her return to Tartarus, and at last Orpheus's death. Then the begonia process is described, which will bring back Aristides' bees. Virgil goes with the sealed room approach rather than the burial approach. Well, not completely sealed. A steer with two years' growth of horns is to be herded into a straight recess and pinched between prisoning walls, which have four slits to let in the four winds. What follows is as beautiful as it is brutal. He is to, quote, batter his flesh to pulp and hide yet whole, and shut the doors and leave him there to lie. Beneath his ribs they scatter broken boughs, with thyme and fresh pulled cassias. This is done when first the west winds bid the waters flow, air flush the meadows with new tints and air, the twittering swallow buildeth from the beams. Meanwhile the juice within his softened bones heats and ferments, and things of wondrous birth, footless at first, Anon, with feet and wings, swarm there and buzz, a marvel to behold, and more and more the fleeting breeze they take, till, like a shower that pours from summer clouds, forced burst they, or like shafts from quivering string, when Parthia's flying hosts provoke the fray. End quote. Virgil also used bee symbolism in his masterpiece, the Aeneid, an epic poem written in part to justify the reign of Rome's first emperor, Augustus, who commissioned it. This mythical account of the origin of Rome traces its descent back to the ancient city of Troy, also known as Ilium, which is where Homer's Iliad gets its name. For ages, the city was assumed by the educated to be merely mythical, until a German businessman named Schliemann, attempting to verify Homer, excavated in Turkey in the 1870s. Thought to be an object lesson about scholarly consensus. It was the hero Aeneas, son of the Trojan prince Anchises and the goddess Aphrodite, who fled the besieged and burning city together with a band of his comrades and after a series of distinctly Odyssean events, settled in Italy, or rather Latium, where his descendant Romulus founded the Eternal City, but not before Aeneas and his cohorts had to overcome the native Latins in battle. This migration, wandering, and occupying a new land can be compared with the bee colonies, which must yearly swarm usually in spring, to find a new home to reproduce its hive. The colonial metaphor is not uncommon in poetry. Take the 19th century American poet William Cullen Bryant, who was writing while there was still a frontier to be conquered in America. The Prairies, from 1836, describes the huge Midwestern landscape as a, quote, great solitude, quick with life where the bee, a more adventurous colonist than man, with whom he came across the eastern deep, fills the savannas with his murmurings and hides his sweets 
as in the golden age, within the hollow oak. I listen long to his domestic hum, and think I hear the sound of that advancing multitude, which soon shall fill these deserts." Bryant's bees here represent manifest destiny, a term that Virgil could well have applied to his story. And yet the poem has a certain ambivalence about the westward course of empire. The bees violate the great solitude of the land and its ancient natives, their hum a harbinger of the industry that is soon to follow, whose own hum would grow to such a height that it displaced the bees themselves. But back to the Aeneid. Prior to landing in Latium, Aeneas and his company find themselves seeking shelter and aid from the city of Carthage in northern Africa, a city which Rome would later utterly destroy as a result of the Punic Wars. At this time, though, Carthage is just beginning to be built by Phoenician colonists from the city of Tyre in what is now Lebanon. We're thus at the crossroads of two empires in embryo. Their enmity is foreshadowed in and, I suppose, justified by the star-crossed romance between Aeneas and the Carthaginian queen Dido. Virgil describes how Aeneas and his men climb a hill where they can observe the city's construction. He compares their labor to that of bees. I quote from the prose translation by W.F. Jackson Knight, brother of the great Shakespeare critic G. Wilson Knight. Normally I find prose inferior to verse for ancient epics, even though it's difficult to recreate the meters in modern English. But this version is recommended since it is almost certainly the only translation done with the approval of Virgil himself. Knight visited a spiritualist medium every Tuesday while working on it to ask the virtuous pagan questions. Anyway, here's the quote. It was like the work which keeps bees hard at their tasks about the flowering countryside as the sun shines in the calm of early summer when they escort their new generation, now full grown, into the open air or squeeze clear honey into bulging cells, packing them with sweet nectar or else take over loads brought by their foragers or sometimes to form up to drive a flock of lazy drones from their farmstead. All is a ferment of activity, as the scent of honey rises with the perfume of thyme. The rivalry between Rome and Carthage later became so intense that the hawkish Senator Cato would tack on to every speech he gave, no matter the subject. Furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed. But at this moment, the nascent city is a wonder to Aeneas. And he declares to them, Thrice happy you, whose walls already rise. Nearly 1700 years later, the English poet John Milton would use the exact same simile as Virgil in his epic about the fall of man, Paradise Lost. Just as in Dante's Inferno, Milton's hell isn't merely chaos, fire, and pain. It is organized. It has a capital city, called Dis in Dante, D-I-S, from Dis Pater, the Roman name for Pluto, 
god of the underworld. Dis, by the way, is a name that the Walt Disney Company trades under at the New York Stock Exchange, so make of that what you will. Milton calls it pandemonium, which means all demons. Within pandemonium is a chamber called the Stygian Council, the name taken from Styx, the river that leads to the underworld in ancient myth. It's built out of gold by Satan's fallen angels in an hour of fitful activity. Hell, too, has its politics. It's interesting that the word pandemonium has acquired a meaning similar to the word panic, which derives from the god Pan, a wild, rustic deity that has strongly influenced modern Christian depictions of the devil. There's a powerful association in our minds with mass irrationality and the demonic. The economist John Maynard Keynes dubbed the force that drove consumer behavior animal spirits. Of course, if you know the roots of those words, you know that's a redundancy. At any rate, here's Milton's description of the council as it assembles for debate. Thick swarmed, both on the ground and in the air, brushed with the hiss of rustling wings, as bees in springtime when the sun with Taurus rides, pour forth their populous youth about the hive in clusters, they among fresh dews and flowers, fly to and fro, or on the smoothed plank, the suburb of their straw-built citadel, new rubbed with balm, expatiate and confer their state affairs." End quote. I think it's unlikely that Milton wouldn't specifically have had Virgil in mind with this simile. Like Aeneas and his crew cast out of Troy, or the Jaredites embarking from Babel, Satan and his fallen angels must swarm out of heaven to establish a new colony. And like the doomed Carthaginians, they build their city as intensely as bees in spring. Note the mention of Taurus here, the zodiacal bull that presides over the beginning of spring. Another connection between bull and bee. As I mentioned before, bees represent industry, order, and the ideal society. Yet Milton made them an image of the perfectly negative society in Pandemonium. An example, perhaps, of the principle that the corruption of the best is the worst. Maybe also a preview of the industrial civilization that in his time is yet to come. In Christianity, bees symbolize the monastic communal life built around hard work and charity. The saying goes, the bee is the Christian and the hive is the church. More broadly, the bee represents the individual, the hive the institution, the honey its product. We may expect then the bee as a symbol to appear in times in which there are tensions, especially economic ones, between the individual and the collective. And so it does.
The German writer Ernst Jünger lived a remarkable life. He was wounded 14 times in the First World War, from which he emerged a highly decorated national hero. His novelized account of his war experiences, Storm of Steel, made him famous. It's common to compare his account with that of Eric Maria Remarque, author of the anti-war novel All Quiet on the Western Front. Both Remarque and Junger served and were wounded on the front, but while Remarque was critical of the nationalist sentiment that led to the war, Junger emerged with his patriotism undiminished. That doesn't mean that Junger's book is propaganda or that it romanticizes the war. In fact, it portrays it quite harrowingly. Junger's political editorializing is minimal and reserved for the very end. He proclaimed that he hated democracy like the plague. He's usually classed among Germany's conservative revolutionaries, a right-wing intellectual movement between the wars that had an ambiguous relationship to the Nazi party. Some of these thinkers joined, like Carl Schmitt, and some did not, like Oswald Spengler. Although the Nazis admired Junger, he did not return the favor, rejecting a proffered seat in the Reichstag. He was then denounced in the Nazi press as a liberal, and his home was searched by the Gestapo. Nevertheless, he again fought on Germany's side in the Second World War, and after being awarded another Iron Cross on the Western Front, he worked for military intelligence in an administrative position in occupied Paris. While there, he fraternized with artists and intellectuals of every persuasion, and he also gave some aid to the French resistance, including protecting Jews. He was also in favor of internal army plots against Hitler, although he didn't have much confidence in them. It was during this time, perhaps as an apologia for his own detachment and ambiguous position, that Junger first conceived of the concept of the Anarch, which he outlined in the 1977 book Oymusville. The Anarch is distinct from the anarchist, who is in open revolt against the state. The Anarch conforms outwardly, but is inwardly free. He tends to obey the rules, but he does not identify with them. He is a temporary volunteer in society. Quote, the partisan wants to change the law, the criminal break it. The anarch wants neither. He is not for or against the law. While not acknowledging the law, he does try to recognize it like the laws of nature, and he adjusts accordingly, end quote. The anarch doesn't fight authority because he himself is sovereign. Now, whatever you might think of this idea, it does have some appeal to it during times in which almost the entire world seems to be going the way of the madhouse. At the very least, if we assume that this was Junger's own personal ideal, it undoubtedly helped his longevity because he died in 1998, aged 102. Junger was clearly built different the detached fascination with which he wrote Storm of Steel is what makes it such a valuable book. It transcends politics 
transcends even the concern with one's own survival. He once watched an Allied air raid from a rooftop in Paris at sunset, which he described in his journal like this, quote, I was holding a glass of burgundy with strawberries floating in it. The city, with its red towers and domes, was a place of stupendous beauty, like a calyx that they fly over to accomplish their deadly act of pollination." End quote. Here he uses an ironic apian metaphor to describe the machinery of war. In a way, it's reminiscent of Milton's pandemonium, with bombers as demonic bees delivering death instead of life amid blooming flowers of flame. The image was not random. Among Jünger's many interests was entomology. This image recurs in a later novel, which has been variously described as science fiction or magical realism, called The Glass Bees, published in 1957. I would merely call it prophetic. Before I describe the book, I'd like to digress and lay out a little theory. Theory of history and of class. It's not original to me. It exists fairly diffused or implicit in various sources, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody explain it as such. And this is just a model. It has some explanatory power, but it doesn't account for everything. It's a map of one kind, not to be confused with the territory. You've no doubt heard of the Hindu caste system, which traditionally divided society into four hierarchically stratified hereditary groups, known as Varnas. I'm not so much interested in the hierarchical or hereditary nature of the Varnas, which brings them a lot of disrepute in the liberal democratic West. As far as I'm concerned, you can consider them psychological or sociological or spiritual rather than genetic. I'm interested in them as a typology and in the way you can observe these different types struggle with each other for supremacy in history. Each type successively gaining dominance over the other generates a historical cycle. If it bothers you to think of it as a decline from greatness to decadence, you can think of it as a flat circle, or even as a spiral. The first class are the Brahmins. These are priests or intellectuals. They live the life of the mind or the spirit. Their form of government is theocracy. Their institution is the church. They rule through ideas and images, not through force or wealth. The next class are the Kshatriyas probably not pronouncing that correctly. These are the warriors. They are spirited in Plato's sense, concerned with issues of pride, honor, and patriotism. Their form of government is aristocracy. Their institution is the state. They rule through war. Then we have the Vaishyas. 
These are the farmers and the merchants, the bourgeois. They live the economic life because their power derives from trade or the market and tends to be more decentralized. But we can think of banks as the supreme vicea institution. They rule through money. Finally, there are the shudras. These are the servants, slaves, or workers. They have no characteristic institution. Okay, maybe a bar or pub. But they've never ruled or held any power except for brief periods during peasant revolts, slave insurrections, and labor strikes. If they rule, I guess you could say they rule through numbers. Marxist theory holds that a worker state will emerge to replace the bourgeois state. Marxism is only concerned with the conflict between the Vaishyas and the Shudras, which in Marxist jargon are the bourgeoisie and the proletariat respectively. The fact that this is so indicates where we were in the cycle as of the mid-19th century when Marx started to write. That is, in the age of the declining power of the Kshatriyas. A cynical view, in which I sometimes believe, is that communism is simply a ploy on the part of the Brahmins to use the Shudra's economic resentments to take power from the Vaishyas and give it back to the Brahmins. Meanwhile, fascism and other reactionary positions are clearly efforts to appeal to the Shudra's cultural resentments to take power from the Vaishyas and give it back to the Kshatriyas. But all these classes are in fact interdependent on one another. They all serve a social function. So it's never the case that one can simply openly declare war and exterminate the others. Rather, each promotes the kind of society which pushes the center of gravity in its direction. So in the theory I proposed earlier, communism is supported by some Brahmins, not because it raises the status of workers, but because it would require many Brahmins, in the nominal guise of workers, to administer its centrally planned economy. Fascism is pushed by the Kshatriyas not because it recaptures national greatness, but because national greatness depends on imperial conquest and a police state. There are elements of this theory in Plato, Vico, in Rudolf Steiner's social threefold, and what in neo-reactionary circles is called the trichotomy. But in all these cases, the Shudra plays no distinct role, perhaps because they have yet to truly emerge on the stage of world history. It's important not to draw lines too sharply here. Just as certain movements and institutions can represent collaborations between classes, so an individual can represent a mix of tendencies, even though usually one predominates. But I'm neither a biological nor economic determinist. Ernst Jünger was accused of liberalism, the Weisha philosophy, by his enemies on the right, and his concept of the Anarch might confirm this, though I expect he would deny it. He wrote a book called The Worker, which might ally him with the Shudras, but I haven't read it, so I could be wrong. In the end, though, he must be claimed by the Kshatriyas. He was not a warmonger, but war did seem to be his proper element. And he also had a strong Brahmin streak as I suspect most writers do. Okay, so this digression on a merely plausible framework sets up my take on Junger's novel, The Glass Bees, which I read as a defeated Kshatriya's perspective 
on what is fast becoming a Vaishya-dominated world. The Glass Bees tells the story of Captain Richard, an unemployed ex-cavalryman, and a strange interview he has with a kind of technological wizard named Zapparoni. The no year is mentioned, it's clearly meant to represent the post-war world of its own time. And yet it all feels uncannily anachronistic, as if we had transitioned immediately from World War I into the technological environment of today. In the first place, it's significant that Richard is a cavalryman. During Junger's lifetime, the meaning of cavalry changed from a soldier who fought on horseback to one that fought in armored vehicles. Captain Richard drove a tank, but he seems as if he might have been a horseman. The horse historically symbolizes the aristocratic class more than any other animal, except maybe the falcon, with its attributed virtues of courage, honor, duty, combativeness, and independence. Additionally, it symbolizes in this book the obsolescent technology. It's no accident that car engines are measured in horsepower. After the war, Captain Richard is himself also obsolete, and he knows it referring to his own mind as a mass of useless and antiquated prejudices. We're moving from a world of war to a world of business. This is why, he says, most states have gone to the dogs. The state, remember, is the Kshatriya institution. Younger perceived a transition from not only the old virtues of the ancien regime, such as heroism, faith, and bravery, but even the relatively recent virtues associated with democracy. Democracy was obsolescent at the moment of its triumph. Younger foresees neoliberalism. While Captain Richard seems like a throwback to pre-industrial times, the inventor Zapparoni seems curiously contemporary. He's the manufacturer of intricate and uncannily realistic automata, first for usage in children's films and then for other, perhaps more nefarious purposes. Reading the passages about Zapparoni's children's entertainment, it's hard not to be reminded of Disney. Quote, Children were consumed with curiosity about each episode. This serial influenced their way of dressing and their tastes. You could see them in the backgrounds, now as space travelers, now as speleologists, another time as sailors in submarines or as cowboys. With these technically tinged fairy tales and adventure stories, Zapparoni aroused strong and lasting enthusiasm. 
the children lived in his world. End quote. Out of his films, Zapparoni has built a commercial empire that attracts every talented engineer eager to sign away their rights to the products of their labor in order to work for him. To be exploited by Zapparoni was the dream of every young man with a technical bent, he writes. Younger describes this world of commercial values in which everything is based on contracts as a total disaster. Quote, Faith no longer existed. Discipline had vanished from the world. It had been replaced by the catastrophe. We were living in permanent unrest, and no one could trust anyone else. End quote. Zapparoni's robots, although the term usually used here is automata, a much older term, are designed in teams by a skill which is, quote, not the property of a single individual. Authorship is one of many vanished old world values. Zapparoni is developing into something we've come to recognize all too well in the 21st century. His empire recalls the stories of Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, and Bill Gates, where technological innovation generates great wealth, which in turn generates something politically ominous. He's a master of PR mystique, developing a, quote, system of direct reportage which stimulated but never quite satisfied curiosity, end quote. Nobody knows where he lives, but his presence is felt everywhere. He arouses the specter of surveillance. Quote, a person so powerful that one does not even dare speak of him becomes almost omnipresent, since he dominates our inner life. We imagine that he overhears our conversations, and that his eyes rest on us in our closest and most private moments. A name that is only whispered is more powerful than one shouted from the rooftops. End quote. Zapparoni has his own police, in addition to having the state's police and army in his pocket. He has an internal intelligence agency called the Clearinghouse, which keeps detailed files on all of his employees. Nowadays, a person has to be mentally x-rayed in order to find out what to expect from him, Younger writes. And it's in this capacity that Captain Richard enters the picture. Zapparoni's engineers have a habit of going AWOL, and he needs someone to protect his proprietary information in such circumstances. The job is in a morally gray area at best, and Captain Richard is well aware of what it might entail. Meeting Zapparoni at his home, Richard is surprised to find that he lives in circumstances quite different from the technological world that he promotes through his business. He has a house designed in an old style with a well-stocked library and a spacious garden. And he notes, quote, Only garden produce grown in the old manner appeared on his table. Here the saying that words have changed is still valid, since bread is no longer bread and wine is no longer wine. They are doubtful chemicals. At present, one really has to be unusually rich to avoid being poisoned. He was like the pharmacist who asks the most exorbitant prices for his pills and miracle drugs, while he himself keeps in good health as his forefathers did. End quote. Only the rich are able to afford non-processed organic food 
in this completely science fictional world. The bulk of the novel is Richard describing his observations of Zapparoni and his private estate during his interview, interspersed with his memories from the war and essayistic digressions on the nature of the new world for which Zapparoni is a harbinger. Prior to meeting him, Richard had been under the impression that Zapparoni's success derived mostly from his skillful exploitation of inventors. But in person, he senses, quote, there was more at work in him than a mercurial intelligence which derives profit from Plutonian zones. Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune were in powerful conjunction, end quote. And I'll leave it to my more astrologically-minded listeners to come up with a full explication of what he means by this. But it seems to be the kind of conjunction you would see in a visionary entrepreneur who overturns a whole industry and gets fabulously wealthy doing it. Zapparoni immediately gives Richard the impression of being an initiate, one of the elect, with an eye of, quote, synthetic blue, fabricated in remote places by a master artist who wished to excel nature. Blue, the color of the sky, has always been the color of heaven. So synthetic blue means synthetic heaven. A false utopia. After a brief meeting, Zapparoni instructs Captain Richard to wait in the garden and to beware of the bees, which Richard proceeds to observe through a pair of binoculars. The garden is tended to by mechanical glass bees, which give Richard the impression of, quote, an insect from the moon. A demiurge from a distant realm, he thinks, who had once heard of bees, might have created it. They are slightly larger than normal bees, about the size of a walnut. Their wings do not move, but act as stabilizing and supporting surfaces. There is a glass hive that Zapparoni's bees fly back to, but it has no real entrances, and the bees do not enter the hive. Richard compares it to an automatic telephone exchange. The glass bees fill it with nectar through the switchboard holes and are ejected with bullet-like speed. He marvels that no collisions occur, and wonders what central control or principle regulates it. I remember having the same thought when I first witnessed Amazon's Kiva robots working at one of their fulfillment centers years ago. These are small rectangular machines that carry four-sided shelves and can move in any direction on a large warehouse floor. My job at the time required counting objects on a seemingly random shelf according to what the computer told me. I had a scanner strapped to my wrist and a ladder in front of me. The shelf might be at any level, so I might have to climb to the top. There could be anything waiting in the shelves. Tools, stickers, copy of Mein Kampf, anything. I remember the first time I climbed to the top of the ladder and saw the whole floor. All these robots zipping around with their shelves. I couldn't really figure out the logic of how they moved or were coordinated. It seemed like some would be on a collision course with each other, but they always moved out of the way. Presumably sensors of some kind keep this from happening. 
Anyway, Richard observes that there are some natural bees there, but if they approach the blossom that has been touched by a glass bee, they fly away. He presumes that the glass bees are more efficient and leave no nectar behind. More disturbingly, he considers that, quote, the vital force of the flowers was exhausted once a glass bee had touched them. As soon as glass bees are mass-produced, Richard reflects, real bees will certainly be out of business. A single glass bee could probably retrieve more honey on a spring day than a natural swarm in a year. They could also work just as well at night and in the rain. The possibility of enormous ecological damage via extinction and natural resource depletion is raised here. Richard considers the more than utilitarian role that bees play in the cosmic plan. And he uses terms that Rudolf Steiner would have certainly agreed with. In the last episode, we explained Steiner's beliefs about the connection of bees to Venus and their use of erotic energy, which permeates their society. Junger writes, quote, as messengers of love, their duty is to pollinate, to fertilize the flowers. But Zapparoni's glass collectives, as far as I could see, ruthlessly sucked out the flowers and ravished them. Wherever they crowded out the old colonies, a bad harvest, a failure of crops, and ultimately a desert were bound to follow." End quote. One could object that it's not likely Zapparoni would engineer mechanical bees to extract nectar from flowers without also considering the fertilization function, but this misses the point. One technological intervention into a natural process requires another, and sooner or later, nature is replaced. Richard sees that Eros, one of the traditional meanings of the bee, is being driven out of the world. Quote, there were neither small nor large cells or any arrangements related to the differentiation of sexes. Indeed, the whole establishment radiated a flawless but entirely unerotic perfection. There were no eggs or cradles for the pupae, and neither drones nor a queen. If one insisted on pursuing an analogy, Zapparoni approved only of sexless workers, and had solved this problem brilliantly. Even here, he had simplified nature, which, as we know, had already attempted a certain economical approach in the slaughtering of the drones. From the very beginning, he had included in his plan neither males nor females, neither mothers nor nurses. In another place, he says, quote, Human perfection and technical perfection are incompatible. If we strive for one, we must sacrifice the other. End quote. In the end, the Vaishya world of business and technology, in its ruthless and unstoppable pursuit of efficiency and profit, will kill the family, kill society, kill nature, kill reality. The glass bees are demiurgic indeed.
Captain Richard believes these technologies are driving us into a world of pure simulacra, fulfilling and surpassing the utopian schemes and magical fantasies of past eras. Quote, Even the ugly and abnormal had been transposed into new, amusing, or frightening but always fascinating domains. Prognoses which have been made contend that our technology will terminate in pure necromancy. If so, everything we now experience would be only a departure and mechanics would become refined to a degree that would no longer require any crude embodiment. Lights, words, yes, even thoughts would be sufficient. Clearly, the Zapparoni films had very nearly realized such a future. The dreams of old utopians were coarse-grained in comparison. With the freedom and elegance of dancers, the automatons had opened up a world of their own. Here a principle operative only in dreams, namely that matter thinks, seemed to be realized. The age-old magician's dream of being able to change the world by thought alone seemed almost to have come true. End quote. A word which didn't exist at the time this novel came out, but which would now be applied to this vision, is post-human. In addition to simulacra, there's a good deal of meditation on deterritorialization in the new world. As everything gets uprooted, words lose their meanings. In this area, I think Junger anticipates postmodern theory here with the split between the sign and the signifier. One example is the word house, which he says was formerly the very essence of stability and permanence, but has really become a kind of tent, although without affording the freedom of nomadic life. This would not be so bad, Captain Richard thinks. If, quote, at least for a short while, one could feel safe in one's own and untouchable home. The opposite is true. Today, the man who has courage to build himself a house constructs a meeting place for the people who will descend upon him by foot, by car, or by telephone. Employees of the gas, the electric, and of the waterworks will arrive, agents of life and fire insurance companies, building inspectors, collectors of the radio tax, mortgage creditors, and rent assessors who tax you for living in your own home." End quote. Another word whose meaning has been transformed is labor, or work. The subject of Virgil's Georgics, one of the ever-present symbolic meanings of the bees. Quote, what they had done in their youth, and what for millenniums had been man's vocation, joy, and pleasure. To ride behind the oxen, to mow the yellow grain in the blazing sun, keep step with the mowers, to rest at noon for a meal in the shade of green trees. All this, praised by the poets since times immemorial, was now past and gone. Joy in labor had disappeared. End quote. This, I think, is the ultimate and most profound secret meaning of the bee symbol, the uniting of labor and love. Neither rest or peace for its own sake, nor activity and struggle for its own sake. 
remove Venus or Cupid's influence from the bees, and you are simply left the meaningless swarm of a pandemonium. last episode, we quoted extensively from Maurice Maeterlinck's Life of the Bee. Here he describes the spring swarm of the bee in his characteristic lyrical style. Quote, At the moment the signal is given, it is as though one sudden mad impulse had simultaneously flung open wide every single gate in the city, and the black throng issues, or rather pours forth in a double or treble or quadruple jet, as the number of exits may be, in a tense, direct, vibrating, uninterrupted stream that at once dissolves and melts into space, with a myriad, transparent, furious wings weave a tissue throbbing with sound. And this for some moments will quiver right over the hive, with prodigious rustle of gossamer silks that countless electrified hands might be ceaselessly rending and stitching. It floats undulating, it trembles and flutters like a veil of gladness and visible fingers support in the sky, and wave to and fro, from the flowers to the blue, expecting sublime advent or departure. And at last one angle declines, another is lifted. The radiant mantle unites its four sunlit corners, and like the wonderful carpet the fairy tale speaks of, that flits across space to obey its master's command. It steers its straight course, bending forward a little as though to hide in its folds the sacred presence of the future, 
towards the willow, the pear tree, or lime, whereon the queen has alighted, and round her each rhythmical wave comes to rest, as though on a nail of gold, and suspends its fabric of pearls and of luminous wings. And then there is silence once more, and in an instant this mighty tumult, this awful curtain apparently laden with unspeakable menace and anger, this bewildering golden hail that streamed upon every object near, all these become merely a great, inoffensive, peaceful cluster of bees, composed of thousands of little motionless groups that patiently wait as they hang from the branch of a tree for the scouts to return who have gone in search of a place of shelter. Well, this is very beautifully observed, and it describes what has come to be called emergent behavior, that is, displaying properties or processes that occur collectively on the macro scale, which exist in no individual part. Rudolf Steiner also observed how intelligence did not really exist in the individual bee, but somehow in the hive as a whole. Although great emphasis is placed on the queen, nobody is really directing the action. Everything just happens. The metaphor of the magic carpet recalls Junger's insistence that technology is fulfilling the magical dream of conscious matter, which appears as a magic carpet without a magic carpet rider. The beehive never really was a monarchy. Maeterlinck says, quote, It is not the queen, but the spirit of the hive that decides on the swarm. And he warns beekeepers off from believing that they control the destiny and soul of the hive merely by manipulating the queen. It's true that through the queen, one can affect great changes in the hive's behavior, but he insists that, quote, the queen is essentially merely a sort of living symbol, standing as all symbols must for a vaster, although less perceptible principle. And this principle, the apiarist will do well to take into account if he would not expose himself to more than one unexpected reverse, end quote. Bees don't exist for the sake of the queen. They exist for the sake of the future, which Maeterlinck insisted was the bee's god. Close observers of bees have long been puzzled by the paradox that bees display such collective cunning, but the individuals don't seem that smart. Even that celebrated collectivist Karl Marx made a distinction here between bee and man, writing, quote, by the complexity of its wax cells, the bee puts more than one architect to shame. But from the outset, what differentiates the worst architect from the most expert bee is that he has built the cell in his head before building it in the hive, end quote. Building it in the head, for Marx, still meant building it in an individual's head. But already in the 19th century, a notion of cosmic or collective consciousness, or superconsciousness, was beginning to emerge, first among mystics and later scientists, and it's one that's taken very seriously by contemporary researchers of artificial intelligence. Steiner believed that the bees had evolved a high level of collective consciousness. They were cosmically precocious in this respect. Humans would not reach this level of development until the next evolutionary cycle, which he calls the Venus cycle the current one being the Earth cycle. Selfishness will disappear, and along with it, sexuality as we know it. There will be a, quote, 
complete fading of the sexual element. With bees, the sexual element is granted only to one queen. The desire nature of the sexual element is almost completely eliminated, and the drones are killed. We see here a prototype of what will be accomplished in future stages of humankind. Work becomes the highest principle." End quote. It might seem ironic that an age named for Venus would lack eroticism, but remember that Venus is also love and harmony more broadly. In the Venus cycle, we will apparently enter into that long-dreamed-of utopia in which man lives for the welfare of the whole. When we reach this point, we will be able to construct objects with the material we create within our own bodies, just as the bees do now. Steiner doesn't explain how reproduction will take place, but it seems unlikely that we'll see equivalents of the nuptial flight or the massacre of the drones. A pure parthenogenesis doesn't seem hard to imagine, even with our current technology. Are we evolving into bees? It sounds like sci-fi, but bee societies and other similar animal collectives really are the model that researchers are looking at to form a kind of global brain, or brain of brains, or swarm of swarms, if you like. The answer goes all the way back to the birds and the bees and fish and ants, all of these creatures have evolved methods of amplifying their intelligence by thinking, toge thinking together in systems. This is why birds flock and fish school and bees swarm. They are smarter together than alone. Now, I'm not talking about crowdsourcing like we humans do by taking votes and polls and surveys. I'm talking about forming systems, real-time systems with feedback loops so deeply interconnected that a new intelligence forms, an emergent intelligence with its own personality and intellect. I'm talking about forming a hive mind. Biologists call this swarm intelligence, and it's a natural step in the evolution of most social species. I like to think about it this way. A brain is a system of neurons so deeply connected that an intelligence forms. A swarm is a system of brains so deeply connected that a superintelligence forms. Simply put, a swarm is a brain of brains and it can be smarter than any individual member. So let me give you an example. Honeybees. There's about 10,000 bees, and they have a very difficult problem to solve. They need to find a new home to move into. That new home could be a hollow log or the hole in the side of a building, or if you're unlucky like I was, a crawl space in your garage. Now, this, this sounds like a simple problem, but this is a life or death decision that could impact the survival of the colony for generations. So to solve this problem, the colony sends out hundreds of scout bees, which search a 30-square-mile area and find dozens of candidate sites. That's the easy part. The hard part is that they then need to pick the best possible solution from all the options that they've discovered. Now, here's the rub. Honeybees have a tiny brain. It's smaller than a grain of sand and has less than a million neurons. You have 85 billion neurons. So however smart you think you are, divide that by 85,000, and that's a honeybee. You probably don't want a honeybee picking a new home for you. And yet honeybees are very discriminating house hunters. They need to find a new home that's large enough to store the honey they need for the winter, that's ventilated well enough to stay cool in the summer, that's insulated well enough to stay warm on cold nights, that's protected from the rain, but also near a good source of clean water. And of course, it needs to be well located near good sources of pollen. This is a complex, multivariable problem, 
And to optimize survival, the bees need to pick the best possible solution across all of the competing constraints. And remarkably, they do it. Biologists have shown that honeybees pick the best possible solution over 80% of the time. If you were a human CEO and you, and you needed to find the perfect location for a new factory, you'd face a similarly complex problem and it'd be very difficult to, to pick the optimal solution and yet honeybees can do it. Let's think about that. A honeybee has a brain so tiny that it can't even conceive of the problem, but when they think together in a system, they can solve it so accurately they can rival a human brain. How do they do this? They do it by forming a swarm intelligence, a brain of brains that combines the knowledge and wisdom and insight and intuition of the group and converges on optimized decisions. I know what you're thinking, really? These are, these are honeybees. How do they express opinions? How do they combine opinions? They do it remarkably by vibrating their bodies. Biologists call this a waggle dance because to us humans, it looks like the bees are dancing, but really they're generating signals that represent their support for the various home sites under consideration. And by combining these signals, the bees engage in a multi-directional tug of war, pushing and pulling on the decision until they find the one solution that they can best agree upon. And it's usually the optimal solution. You've probably heard the phrase, make a beeline, which means to go straight to something comes from the fact that when a bee returns to the hive from a particularly good and plentiful source of nectar, other bees will go straight off to it. Same thing happens when scouts are sent out to find good locations for a new home for the colony. This fact had long raised a problem. How did the other bees know where to find it without that bee leading them there? They had to be communicating in some way. It was a mystery until the scientist Karl Ritter von Frisch proposed a form of communication which he described, perhaps a little poetically, as a dance in his 1927 work, The Dancing Bees. In what has become known as the waggle dance, a bee moves in a figure eight pattern that encodes a map to the needed resources. The angle it takes indicates direction and the number of repetitions indicates distance. This is Fascinating, but by itself, it doesn't have much implication for human beings since we already have a much more complex language we can use to communicate. But AI researchers are interested in so-called bee democracy. That is, how bees come to make decisions collectively when scouts find several spots worthy for a colony, for instance. One thing's clear, the bees don't count votes. It's something more organic than that and some tech companies, naturally, are trying to capture it in an algorithm. It might be worth mentioning at this point that the ancient Egyptian word for bee is bit. Why swarm? Making good decisions is critical to any organization. Swarm empowers teams to quickly converge on optimized solutions, greatly outperforming votes, polls, and surveys. Let's take a very simple example. Imagine a team needs to make a highly controversial decision. What should we order for lunch? Indian food, Mexican food, Italian food or Chinese food? How can we maximize the group's overall satisfaction? You might think, oh, that's easy. Let's take a vote. Great. Let's say two people voted Indian and the others were split. One vote each for Chinese, Mexican and Italian. 
The winner is clear. Indian food with the most votes. That must be the best choice. But the most popular answer and the optimized answer are often different. What if the other three people hate Indian food, or are allergic, or had it yesterday? Now let's imagine that the you swarm instead. The process starts the same, with one person pulling for Chinese, Mexican, and Italian, and two for Indian. So the swarm starts moving towards Indian. But this is not a vote. It's a real-time system with feedback loops. Everyone acting, reacting, and interacting. One person who starts pulling for Mexican might be just as willing to go to Chinese and switches. Another person might be willing to go anywhere, so long as it's not Indian, switching multiple times. As these changes happen, our swarm intelligence algorithms watch the real-time behaviors of every participant, assessing the strength of their conviction and determining how the swarm should move at every instant. And guess what? As the participants wrestle with the issue, the algorithms find a better path—one that optimizes the collective satisfaction of the group. Now, imagine that instead of five people, it was ten, or twenty, or fifty. And instead of choosing lunch, they were deliberating which product features would perform the best in the market, or which marketing strategy would give the largest return. All kinds of organizations, both large and small, have used Swarm to make better decisions, from evaluating products and features to optimizing ad campaigns, from hiring better people to making more accurate sales forecasts. How will your team use Swarm? So the advantage of a swarm system is that it replaces suboptimal majoritarianism with optimal decisions, a refinement to democracy. It's tug of war plus emergence. Now, if you think this kind of process isn't going to have much wider application than what to order for lunch, or that it won't be applied to social media, a global networked phenomenon, you're crazy. And if you think this process is impossible to manipulate, you're even crazier. Decisions made in this way have proven better than individuals, on average, according to their advocates, at least, on things like predicting the outcomes of horse races or picking Oscar winners. But would they be willing to do this for deciding, say, whether to use military force to intervene in a conflict in a foreign country? Or the kinds of moral decisions the Supreme Court decides on, like abortion or capital punishment. These latter aren't merely about optimal outcomes, but about a society's fundamental values. Can we rationally choose our values as a collective? Is collective optimality the supreme human value? The assumption of swarm proponents is that if it works so well with simple creatures like fish or bees, it will work that much better. With complex creatures like human beings, but what evidence is there that the complexity of the individuals won't actually be a stumbling block instead? There is, after all, a huge difference between bee and man, at the individual level. Maeterlinck wrote, "The god of the bees is the future." What this really means is that bee individuals are infinitely self-sacrificing for the good of the whole. I think this is really important for their ability to use this process to make optimal group decisions. It also affects their individual morality, for lack of a better word. 
Maeterlinck again, quote, There is a strange duality in the character of the bee. In the heart of the hive, all help and love each other. They are as united as the good thoughts that dwell in the same soul. Wound one of them, and a thousand will sacrifice themselves to avenge its injury. But outside the hive, they no longer recognize each other. They are not sentimental, and should one of their number return from work so severely wounded as to be held incapable of further service, they will ruthlessly expel her from the hive. End quote. I've observed over and over again how the bee colony symbolizes ideal social order, but in the industrial era, it began also to absorb and reflect human fears about mob rule, mass hysteria, and technological control. Junger's glass bees is clearly one notable example where bees appear as an aggressive threat. Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! Out of my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Ah! Claire Preston's book, Bee, gives a good overview. Quote, The bee, once the uncontested emblem of moral rectitude in its communal cooperation, was now starting to be understood as radically, unnervingly unselfed, a natural emblem of the anonymous and identical part in a hive, which quickly began to resemble nothing so much as a mill or a foundry. The development of modern apiculture, dating from Langstroth's 1851 invention of the movable frame hive and other innovations, seemed, moreover, to industrialize beekeeping itself so that the mid and late 19th century hive really did suggest a factory where, as Blake said, the arts of life they changed into the arts of death. Carlyle compared the working of the metal in a sheet iron mill to the manipulation of beeswax. Coleridge, writing of mob behavior, said that crowds, quote, like bees become restless and irritable through the increased temperature of collected multitudes. Hence, the German word for fanaticism is derived from the swarming of bees, namely Schweiermann, Schweiermary. In Letter to a Noble Lord on the French Revolution, Burke converts the ancient miracle of the ox-born bee, this is begonia, remember, into insurrectionary insects who emerge irresistibly, quote, from the rotten carcass of their own murdered country, Milton's swarms of damned angels, commanded by Beelzebub, literally Lord of the Flies, haunted the body and the imagination. End quote. You could probably imagine your own nightmare scenarios from this nasty side of swarm intelligence as applied to social media. The 2016 Black Mirror episode, Hated in the Nation, managed to combine one such nightmare with the prospect of colony collapse as automated drone insects originally created by the government to replace bees, shades of younger here, are used to murder the most hated person that day on social media, a kind of crowdsourced assassination. The threat of losing the liberal virtues and individual rights as society develops more massive and complex hangs over Major Link's investigation of bees. Quote, The aim of nature is manifestly the improvement of the race, but no less manifest is her inability or refusal to obtain such improvement, except at the cost of the liberty, the rights, and the happiness of the individual, in proportion as a society organizes itself and rises in the scale, so does a shrinkage enter the private life of each one of its members. End quote. 
The loss of privacy is also a theme of the glass bees. I don't know of any time in my life when the status of liberalism in its classical expression was lower. Wright's rhetoric is seen as a stumbling block to the common good when it isn't simply dismissed as cringe. Strangely though, the transition from individualism to collectivism is a movement internal to liberalism itself. Its pursuit of happiness has degenerated into a meaningless, mindless consumerism. We've fallen into the honey. Fashionable nonconformity is a predictable market demographic, fodder for the advertising ghouls, an algorithm. A return to tradition, that rebellion against the rebels, that too is a known quantity that can be both courted and molded by the market. Everywhere, on the left and right, there is a hunger for a meaningful collective struggle, some escape from the waxen cell of the self. The reasons for this are completely understandable, but I believe our inevitable post-liberal future will lose much that is valuable, and it may only be our swerve into the swarming mind that will teach us what, but the remnant capable of learning this lesson might be the last of men, massacred like the useless drones, finally sealed off from honey and hive. I'm even more concerned about the dying of man than I am with the dying of bees, though I think they're in some mysterious way connected. And I'm left wondering whether or not, if the god of the bee is the future, will the god of the future be the bee?